Long Reads is supported by Haymarket Books. One Haymarket title you might enjoy is Keywords for Capitalism, Power, Society, Politics by John Patrick Leary. Historian Greg Grandin has described it as a much-needed handbook to help those who want to challenge capital to avoid falling into its semantic sand traps. You can find Keywords for Capitalism at haymarketbooks.org. Readers in the US and the UK receive free shipping on orders over $25 or £20. Hello, you're very welcome to Long Reads, a Jacobin podcast where we look in depth at political topics and thinkers. My name's Daniel Finn. I'm the Features Editor here at Jacobin, and I'll be presenting the show. Since the late 1990s, Pakistan has experienced several rounds of intense political turbulence. But the crisis unfolding today may be the most dramatic episode to date. The ousted Prime Minister Imran Khan has refused to go quietly and his supporters are challenging the powerful military establishment. Khan himself survived an assassination attempt last November. Our guest today for a conversation about Pakistani politics is Ayaz Malik. He's a lecturer in human geography at the University of Liverpool. What was the political situation in Pakistan at the beginning of this century when the US launched its so-called war on terror after the 9-11 attacks? Okay, so I think we can kind of disaggregate this situation into three aspects. One is the political itself, second is the economic, and the third is, you know, the ideological. So I'll, I'll go through each of these very briefly. At the political level, you know, at the start of the century, we have the military dictatorship of General Musharraf, which comes into power through a coup in 1999, on the back of a decade of seesaw between civilian governments, between different civilian parties and in the background with the military acting in the background. Now, this the dictatorship of, the, of, of General Musharraf doesn't really have a lot of legitimacy, neither nationally or from the usual imperial patrons, which have you know, patronized uh, the ruling classes in Pakistan. So, for example, when Bill Clinton comes to uh, South Asia, India and Pakistan in 2000, the express uh, condition he has of coming to Pakistan is that he will not be photographed shaking the dictator General Musharraf's hand. So there's not much legitimacy there at the political level for this, for this dictatorship. At the economic level, Pakistan is facing a long stagnation due to debt burden, repeated kind of balance of payment crises, and a crucial factor is uh, the sanctions that the U.S. placed on Pakistan after it tested nuclear weapons in the late 1990s. Along with that, during the late 90s as well, they have been you know, repeated going to uh, IMF. And this, this stop-start process of neoliberalization, which entailed policies of demand compression, cutting development expenditure. And it's this stop-start process of privatization. So, for example, of development financial institutes of the country in energy uh, this in the energy sector so for example the US secretary of state at the time for energy hazel o'leary says that this is pakistan has the best energy policy in the world and you know this best energy policy in the world is basically a whole scale privatization of energy production which you know lays the roots for the current energy crisis in pakistan and feeds very much into the debt and balance of payments crisis today. So that's at the economic level at the start of the century. And at the ideological level, what is has been instituted over the last 20 years before the 2000s is this kind of very Islamist, Praetorian, military-centered ideological common sense, which is a legacy of the anti-Soviet jihad and the anti-communist onslaught of the 1980s, 
by the previous US-backed dictatorship of General Zia, who's kind of, you know, our own Pinochet. And the most obvious culmination of this ideological inclination is the installation by the Pakistani military of the Taliban regime next door in Afghanistan. But of course, the hypocrisy and instrumentality of U.S. imperialism is here too, because as we know uh, that, you know, in the late 90s, America was negotiating with the same derided Taliban over the Unicol oil pipeline for a $10 billion project. So, yeah, so that's the kind of political, ideological and kind of economic coordinates that, you know, Pakistan is facing at the turn of the century, really. How did the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan affect Pakistani politics? Okay, so so this uh, occupation of Afghanistan by the U.S. and this onslaught by NATO uh, is basically a very lucky break for the Pakistani ruling bloc. And as I said, you know, they have, they have been facing this kind of long-term stagnation, especially over the last 10 years, especially with the military dictatorship. And when America comes into Afghanistan, the, the military government, General Musharraf, they whole-scale sign up to this American-led war on terror. Uh, and the Pakistani ruling bloc with the military at its center at the time, you know, is shored up politically and economically through American aid and concessions. So, for example, during the Musharraf years, uh, there's about, just during the Musharraf years, uh, there's about $12 billion in military aid alone, which comes in from the U.S. and allies. Plus, there is a deferment of debt payments for about 20 years. So, in, in addition to that, there is increased remittances from the Pakistani diaspora post 9-11 as America cracks down on informal ways of, of you know, transferring money internationally. Uh, so there is this inflow of aid and cash coming into Pakistan, which feeds into further restructuring of the economy along the lines of what we would call kind of import-based consumption. Most of this investment comes through the services sector and is put into speculative sectors such as real estate and financialized instruments. And almost none goes into productive sectors such as industry and agriculture. The Musharraf regime says that industry kind of, you know, saw a lot of investment in our, in our time, but that's basically a fudging of figures. And you can look at some of the literature on this. On the other hand, along with this, you know, during, during this so-called war on terror and uh, Musharraf regime, there's this full-blown privatization program, you know, from commercial banks to state-owned enterprises and telecom, power sector, and even many state enterprises which were actually turning a profit for the state exchequer were, you know, uh, were, you know, privatized. Similarly, there is this, you know, increasing hegemony of the IMF and the World Bank in economic policy making. This happens through the 90s and Musharraf's prime minister, finance minister, you know, key people in his regime are basically imported from the IMF, World Bank, international financial institutions. Uh, economically, there is an increasing hegemony of the military itself within the economy. This has been, again, a longer process, but in the, in the Musharraf years, this becomes turbocharged. There is a corporate encroachment and an increasing program of dispossession and expropriation in various parts of Pakistan, rural, urban, periphery core, uh, which leads to, for example, you know, peasant movements against dispossession in Okara, central Punjab, and there's a oper- military operation in Balochistan. Now, linked to the war on terror, of course, there is a huge war economy which opens up in Pakistan. This again builds on the war economy which had developed in the 1980s. Uh, because Pakistan, of course, becomes the central node again in the American Imperium's kind of regional war machine. There is a huge black market in weapons, which feeds into militancy and you know terrorism, so-called. Uh, and for example, I remember in in, uh, in a Supreme Court hearing in 2012 about target killings in Karachi, the biggest city, the police chief 
uh, said that over these last 10 years since the war, so-called war on terror started, 15,000 NATO tankers with their weapons and sophisticated weaponry and so on and so forth had disappeared en route to Afghanistan within Pakistan itself. So there's this huge war economy which builds up. The Musharraf regime undertakes you know, military operations to tackle militancy in the tribal areas, in the peripheral areas of Pakistan. And then there is another military operation in the Balochistan province, which is the biggest province, but also the most underdeveloped and has a long running insurgency for autonomy and independence. This military operation in Balochistan is triggered by the rape of a female doctor by an army officer. And by the killing of one of the tribal leaders in Balochistan, Nawab Akbar Bukhti, who ironically had been one of the most pro-military and pro-state tribal kind of leaders historically. As a result of this operation, there are hundreds, if not thousands of missing persons by the military regime. You know, people basically were abducted and disappeared. Many were literally sold to the U.S. And this is claimed very proudly by General Musharraf in his biography. These people were sold to the U.S. for dollars. They ended up in Bagram Air Base in Guantanamo, most of them disappeared into the dungeons of the Pakistani state. So linked to all of this, then there is the ideological aspect to it as well. As the Pakistani ruling classes, the Pakistani ruling bloc, the military regime takes this U-turn with regards to patronage of, you know, Islamist groups, uh, militant groups in the region, there is this immense blowback. So, you know, the same groups or allied groups, which Pakistani military and the establishment, security establishment, had patronized and promoted over the last 20, 30 years with regards to so-called Afghan Jihad, and then later in Kashmir, now turned back and start attacking first the military and then public places themselves. So in the aftermath of the war on so-called war on terror, we have more than 60,000 people killed in Pakistan in various attacks by so-called militants, civilians, soldiers, ordinary people. And there is this complete ideological confusion in the social formation and the polity with regards to the role of Islam in Pakistan itself. When and why did the period of military rule under Musharraf eventually come to an end? So, as I had briefly indicated uh, earlier, you know, the, during the Musharraf era itself, uh, the military rule era from 2001-2008, there is this rising slew of movements. I mentioned the peasant movement against uh, the corporate kind of encroachment of agricultural lands in the central Punjab, the heart of the main province in Pakistan. There is the nationalist movement for autonomy or independence in Balochistan. There is, from 2005 onwards, there is this economic slowdown which is coming because of there's a worldwide rise in commodity prices. So there is inflation. And then there is this consumption-based boom which is running out of steam. On the other hand, as I said, there are missing persons. There is privatization. And what does what does happen is that slowly there is a, there is a assertion within the state apparatus itself centered on the judiciary, which, you know, takes up cases of things like missing persons. Things like irregularities in privatization. And in 2007, what happens is that General Musharraf attempts to dismiss the, the chief justice of Pakistan at the time, Chaudhary Iftikhar, and you know a slew of judges allied to him. And that basically triggers for a movement which is called the lawyer's movement. So first, it engulfs the judicial fraternity for the restoration of the dismissed judges. But eventually, it becomes a much wider movement with drawing in middle classes, popular classes, 
drawing in actually a new generation of people, you know, people like myself and young people, middle class people into an anti-dictatorship movement, which then eventually leads into in late 2007 to General Musharraf imposing a second martial law in Pakistan. It's a unique achievement of Musharraf. You know, no one has done this. He imposes a second martial law, the first in 99 and then one in 2007. But eventually he's forced out of power. And it is in this struggle during 2007-2008 that Benazir Bhutto, the former prime minister and daughter of a kind of heroine of the last last Indian dictatorship struggle, she comes back to Pakistan and is eventually murdered. Uh, and her party, the People's Party, comes into power at the back of this large movement, anti-dictatorship movement over 2007-2008. Pervez Musharraf died earlier this month in exile at the age of 79. The BBC carried this report on his legacy for Pakistan. 1999 and when troops stormed the national television headquarters to put Pervez Musharraf in power, the people of Pakistan heard a familiar refrain. The nation needed another leader in uniform to save it from self-serving politicians. In the past, our governments have ruled the people. It is time now for the governments to serve the people. Pakistan had already been under army rule for more than half the time it had been independent. General Musharraf portrayed himself as a modernizer, out to rid Pakistan of Islamic extremism. The attacks in the US in September 2001 severely tested his resolve. Controversially within Pakistan, he decided to support the American-led military campaign to oust the Taliban regime in neighbouring Afghanistan. The best way to fight this common enemy is to join hands. He faced protests that he'd sold out to the Americans. Later, he only narrowly escaped an attempt on his life. Challenges to his authority were put down with military force. He later handed over control of the army. But the killing of the former Prime Minister, Benazir Bhutto, in 2007, soon after her return from exile, undermined President Musharraf's claim that the nation was safe in his hands. Then his party was trounced at the polls, and the coalition that came in decided to impeach him for his alleged misrule as president. Pervez Musharraf, though, moved first and resigned. He went into self-imposed exile but returned to Pakistan six years later, intending to stand in the forthcoming general election. But he was placed under arrest, a move Musharraf described as politically motivated. Allowed to seek medical treatment abroad, he was convicted in his absence of treason and accused of involvement in Bhutto's assassination. Before the rise of Imran Khan's movement, civilian politics in Pakistan had been dominated for long period of time by two organisations, the People's Party on the one hand and the Muslim League on the other. How would you characterise those parties and their leadership teams in social and in political terms? I'll go through the parties one by one. Uh, so the first is the People's Party. Now, the People's Party originates in the throes of the Pakistan, the left and labor and peasantry upsurge in Pakistan in the late 1960s against the then military dictator, General Ayub Khan. And this is, of course, part of this wider third-worldist, anti-colonial, 
decolonial, you know, Marxist, broadly leftist current, which happens not just in Pakistan, but, you know, in other places as well. We know about the long 68 in other parts of the world, Mexico, Japan, France, and so on and so forth. So the People's Party is a product of this insurgency in the late 60s, early 70s. And it initially has a left populist program under the leadership of Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, which is based on reforms around land and labor, uh, nationalization of key sectors, and so on. But the People's Party, you know, what was always an uneasy alliance of a few fractions, a few classes. One is the one were the middle progressive sections of the middle class. Second was large sections of insurgent working class, as I mentioned just a bit earlier. And the third and very important was that it were the big landlords in the in the People's Party. Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto, the founder of the People's Party himself, was from a big landlord family. We're now going to hear some clips from an interview with Zulfiqar Ali Bhutto for a British television programme. It was conducted in 1969. I, my party believes in giving Pakistan not only democracy, but with democracy, economic justice as well. I want to end this system of Buffalo Bill capitalism and Jesse James capitalism. That doesn't mean I'm going to uh, eliminate private enterprise altogether. But the kind of system that exists today in Pakistan has to be radically modified. It's not the law of God that my people alone should be poor. And it is about time that they also have a break. Like your people want better conditions, better living conditions, better facilities. I want to give my people the same thing. That is why my people are with me. Bhutto denied that there was a contradiction between his political agenda and his elite social background. I think uh, history bears out that many uh, people from landowning families who espouse the cause of social justice have sacrificed their personal interests. You had that in the French Revolution, in the Russian Revolution and in many other uh, countries of the world. But I believe that uh, the cause of a people, the cause of a country, is more important than personal vested interests. The founder of the People's Party also rejected the idea that Islam was incompatible with left-wing politics. That Islam and socialism are compatible. I have never used the word Islamic socialism. What I have said is that there is no contradiction between the principles of Islam and those of modern socialism, and that If they were irreconcilable, then the controversy would uh, become valid. But it is uh, not valid because there is no conflict. And there are many Muslim countries which claim to have a socialist system. I'm not going into the merits of whether they are socialists or not, but they claim to be socialist countries. What kind of a socialist are you, Mr. Bhutto? Well, you see, as I said today in my public uh, speech, in, in the public meeting, I'm a socialist, I'm not a communist. If some communists join in uh, in the march that took place today, that's a different matter because I suppose they think that they, their road and, uh, and mine uh, converges to a point. Beyond that, there's a point of departure. But uh, I would say that if you want to talk in comparative terms, it's always difficult because you can't give exact analogies, but the Scandinavian form of socialism for Europe with Asian conditions, I would like to see that form of socialism in Pakistan. Uh, And over the years, and starting from early on in the Bhutto era itself, the left really got purged from within the People's Party, and the party becomes more and more a representative of big big landlords. 
Uh, that being said, the party leads a valiant struggle against the Zia dictatorship in the 1980s. But eventually, you know, it follows the path of a lot of center-left social democratic parties around the world. You know, what Tariq Ali calls the extreme center in that it, it, it compromises with imperialism and reconciles itself to neoliberal globalization through the 1980s, uh, 90s and beyond. Today, the People's Party is basically a party of the big landlords confined mainly to the Sindh province of Pakistan. It's a southern province where the biggest city is Karachi. So it's confined mainly to Sindh province. And many of these landlords have now diversified into other sectors such as real estate and agro-processing with a big helping hand of the state apparatus and its fire sale privatization of assets. So concretely, it has been reduced to a very narrow party in terms of the regional and class interests it represents. However, it is a very clever party as well because it very deftly uses its legacy of left and dictatorship struggle to attract liberal intellectuals who directly and indirectly you know, act, as, act as kind of its conduits of hegemony, especially among progressive and urban middle class uh, sections. So it's, you know, a, a parallel here is with Gramsci's kind of southern question and when he's talking about southern intellectuals in, in Italy and their alliance with the northern bourgeoisie. So with the People's Party, you know, we have this limited absorption of the Sindhi-speaking middle class which has been helped by moves towards federal autonomy and decentralization over the last decade, which is called the 18th Amendment. And we'll talk about this a bit uh, later on. And the People's Party has almost this kind of Janus phase, right? So it's on one hand, it promotes the interests of landlords and rapacious crony capitalism in Sindh, but then also maintains this so-called liberal phase with its attendant kind of material and ideological concessions to keep certain middle class sections and intellectuals tied to it. So that's the People's Party. The second party that you mentioned, the Pakistan Muslim League, Nawaz faction especially, is the biggest faction. The PMLN, you know, as it's called, the PMLN has its historical base in the kind of petty bourgeois fractions which emerged in the wake of the 1960 Green Revolution and the Gulf migration which happened in Pakistan through the 70s and then the increasing denationalization of the economy in the 80s dictatorship. Uh, so there is this emergent petty and big bourgeoisie which kind of is based in agro-processing services and retail sectors, which have an increasing share in the Pakistani economy. This kind of pity and big bourgeoisie kind of spans the urban-rural divide, the formal-informal divide, especially in the biggest and kind of, you know, what we would call the hegemonic Punjab province. This kind of emergent bourgeoisie gets more and more integrated into the lower rungs of the Pakistani state bureaucracy through the 80s dictatorship. And Nawaz Sharif, who is the leader of the PMLN and former prime minister as well, uh, and his Sharif family are basically handpicked favorites of one of the main generals of the Zia dictatorship. And they eventually gain the position through the 90s of the People's Party's main rival in kind of civilian and electoral politics. So over the years, this kind of uh, the PMLN has retained this kind of petty bourgeois base, and it has also fashioned itself as the party of big business and you know quote unquote development in the conventional sense. So you know both parties have basically have a very narrow class basis, but and operate mechanisms of hegemony through intellectuals through ideological material means such as the state bureaucratic apparatus. Both, however, you know, uh, this is very important, have been fundamentally cooperated into the neoliberal order. And they have a broad agreement on the macroeconomic policy and political economic structure of Pakistan, the direction of Pakistan. Uh, The People's Party always formed the quote-unquote liberal flank of this hegemony, while the N-League, with its base in the biggest and core Punjab province, always has been the more conservative and aligned with mainstream kind of religious nationalism of Pakistan. 
both also operate in an extremely narrow manner. They are dominated by major political families and party positions, both in government and outside. They basically circulate among sons, nephews, in-laws and loyalists. For both parties, the model of so-called development is also very narrow and based basically on cultivation of clientelist networks and kind of high profile glitzy projects with their networks of contractors and beneficiaries, uh, as opposed to, you know, any kind of broad based inclusive program based on universal entitlements. In terms of their engagement with the military, and I will finish here, in terms of their engagement with the military, kind of both parties play a game of hide and seek. And in their various tenures have fallen foul of the military, which is the biggest and most organized economic and political player in the country. In fact, it is, in my opinion, it's the limited class base and this kind of narrow modus operandi of these parties, which conditions the repeated compromise with the military establishment and their, you know, uh, agreement with the encroachment of the military into what would be quote-unquote normative civilian domains, right? So, for example, within these parties' rules, there have been repeated and unaccountable military operations uh, which have continued in the peripheries. Military courts themselves were ratified and justified by these parties, and they themselves have allied periodically with the military to bring each other's governments down at provincial levels in the Balochistan Assembly, in the Balochistan province, and indeed in the federal senate as well. Uh, so in contrast to much of the liberal discourse in Pakistan, as I have been implying, uh, this tendency to compromise with the military is kind of rooted in the narrow social basis of these parties, rather than a simply subjective failing to conform with the norms of liberal democracy and kind of institutional separation of power. Uh, and indeed, this is in contrast to the liberal advocacy of continuity of liberal democracy. Uh, because with the continuity of liberal democracy, actually what we see is not increasing substantive democracy, but actually a concomitant right, rise in military authoritarianism. This has been the trend for the last 10 years. Uh, and the secret of this paradoxical continuity of liberal democracy and rise in military authoritarianism, the secret of this itself is in Pakistan's narrow political economic structure. You've obviously touched upon this point in relation to the social base and narrow social orientation of the political parties, but perhaps we could address this question in its own right. What would you say are the main features of Pakistan's present day economic model as it's taken shape over the last decade and more? And what social outcomes has it generated for the people of Pakistan? Pakistan has a kind of classic uh, what we would call peripheralized political economy, peripheral political economy, or what would in some in more classical terms, more old-fashioned terms, might want to call a semi-colonial or neo-colonial economy, uh, which is basically structured around what we would what we call extroversion towards the imperial world system and is narrowly concentrated in very few economic sectors. So in some senses, it's a very classical kind of peripheral country, peripheral social formation. But however, there is one twist and difference here which is the historical role of imperialism and imperial patronage, especially around Pakistani ruling bloc selling or what we can call export of its military services to imperialism, which has then shaped the political terrain in a certain manner. So just coming to the, to the bare bone political economic structure, you know, for example, so, so exports of primary products and low value products such as, you know, cotton, textiles, rice and generally low value added products are basically make up two thirds of exports. Then, on the other hand, there is the export of labor, which which Pakistan does mainly to the Gulf countries, but also to Western countries, 
for remittances. And then, you know, they sell, as I said, historically, they've been at the forefront of acting as regional kind of, you know, gendarmeries of imperialism with regards to the military services and for that which, you know, they have received aid. So it's a very narrow economic structure. Over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a, there's been a secular decline in agriculture and manufacturing and increasing hegemony or role of the services and retail sector in the economy, uh, which has gone. So, for example, the retail services sector was 25% of GDP in the 1950s. It is 60% of the GDP now. And of course, with, with agriculture and manufacturing secular decline and services being the main component of the economy and of labor absorption, that of course comes with its own you know, insecure and very peripheral, very footloose forms of employment generation. One of the few areas of global manufacturing in which Pakistan has a major impact is the production of footballs. This Al Jazeera report from the city of Sialkot was broadcast during last year's World Cup. They are producing at the moment the most footballs played in World Cup as well as in certain leagues all over the world. More than 70% of world's footballs are made in Sialkot's 1,000 plus factories. An inflatable rubber bladder is created, inflated, checked and tested to make the ball score. Workers carefully attach each panel before the final product is heat-sealed into shape. The official 2022 match ball is equipped with a motion sensor inside to track the player's location the moment the ball is kicked. Combined with technology at the stadium, the video assistant referee, or VAR, picks the movement and positioning of the ball instantaneously. The ball is made with recyclable and water-based inks and glues. The 20 panels moulded together have dimple-like features to make the most aerodynamic ball for any World Cup. Five and a half million Al-Rehla balls were part of the 43 million footballs manufactured in Sialkot last year. Supporters of Sialkot are the truly ambassadors of the Pakistan around the globe. We have a wide range of product line, which is from surgical industry to gym wear to sports wear, whether it is uh, uh, from settlery to music instrument. This city of Sialkot, which is having only a small population of 600,000 people, we are contributing more than $3.5 billion every year into the national economy. Overall, the trend has been of divestment of state intervention from ensuring investment in productive sectors and an expensive employment generation. And investment has basically gone into non-productive and speculative sectors such as real estate and financialization. Uh, there is a very low, low tax to GDP ratio. So the Pakistani elite doesn't want to tax itself. 60% of the state revenue comes through indirect or what we call regressive taxation. Uh, there are very low levels of investment, right? So the t- investment to GDP ratio is about 15%, which is basically half of the regional average. So if you look at Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, India, and so on, even, even with all their pop problems, their investment to GDP ratio is around 30% for all of them. Half the budget actually goes towards debt repayments, which is actually more than that spent on public health. Uh, about a quarter of the budget goes towards defense, so to the military. And according to a recent UNDP report, the subsidies that elites get in Pakistan, including the corporate sector, uh, you know, big landlords, the military and so on, is close to $18 billion per year. 
right there is a huge concentration of urban and rural land right so 1% in the rural areas 1% of the population owns 20% of the land in karachi where i come from 2% of houses are built on 23% of residential land and the bottom 50% 60% are built on 8% and this is huge concentration of land even while landed elites and middle classes have diversified into agri related and non agricultural services the social outcomes of course are you know therefore that you know there is huge underinvestment in you know public welfare development you know almost 30% of children under the age of 5 are underweight 40% of children suffer from stunting and these are unicef figures almost one fourth of the population for example is exposed to arsenic contaminated water in karachi where i come from 86% of water has high levels of lead is basically poison right so so what we have basically is a very narrow economic structure uh, there is no wide or expansive productive base there is very low mobilization of internal savings for example via taxation for investment in productive sector productive sectors and welfare uh, there is reliance on export of labor and military services and imperial aid uh, and this is really this reliance on imperialism imperial aid and export of labor for remittances this is really the concrete basis of pakistan's dependency and insertion into the imperial imperial world system and unequal world system Uh, so basically as i said it's a, it's a very narrow and concentrated economy with low absorptive capacity of labor and popular classes and as a result of this low absorptive capacity it is it is a very unstable base for any kind of sustainable hegemony hegemonic project of the ruling bloc uh, and therefore such a narrow economic political economy and its specific insertion into the imperial world system then conditions the polity in certain ways right so for example making the use of coercion essential to ensure the unity and the perpetuation of the social formation this imperial patronage then of course who does the coercion the military the imperial patronage also you know has led to the to the economic might and the monopoly of the military right it's the biggest political and economic player in the country it conditions the polity and the political terrain along the civil military imbalance and then of course because of this low absorptive capacity because of this narrow economic structure in terms of the social formation itself there is always a susceptibility to populist insurgency populist upsurges which we you know see later on uh, with the emergence of the imran khan project what role have the pakistani army and intelligence services played since the restoration of civilian rule right so uh, in 2008 we have you know the fall of the military dictatorship of general musharraf and there is a restoration of you know formal democracy on the back of a popular movement right the one which i mentioned lawyers movement uh, so this was a momentary step back taken by the military in formal politics even then though the economic interests of the military were not touched uh, and these have kept increasing over the years with the military diversifying in more and more sectors uh, this military economic empire or what aisha sadiqa has called uh, military incorporated was already standing at 20 billion dollars at the end of the 2000s uh, and i'm sure it is magnitudes greater now uh, the military budget of course also kept increasing by an average of 10 to 15% each year and that does not account for the kind of unaccounted military expenses and pensions and so on so now while the military took a step back in formal governance it retained its its role as ultimate guarantor and arbitrator in the polity 
so it kept key areas of state policy in its own hands including internal security and foreign policy such as you know especially relations with important countries like india afghanistan the us and so on uh, similarly the military operations began during the musharraf years in peripheral areas of pakistan such as farta the so called tribal areas and balochistan province were even intensified in with this so called with the restoration of formal democracy on the pretext of fighting terrorism and separatist movements uh and all of this of course was generously funded by the us via the coalition support funds which you know a total of 14 billion dollars since 2002 uh and become and they are part of the total 33 billion dollars of aid that pakistan received has received from the us since 2002 uh as mentioned earlier the, these 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 operations brutal military operation in the peripheral areas continue and there are disappearances basically kidnappings of activists political workers and even ordinary people but this momentary step back of the military post 2008 is very important in another respect which is the passing of the what we call the 18th amendment to the constitution of pakistan in 2010 now this 18th amendment substantially increased federal autonomy over matters such as education health uh, and so on and it also increased resources for the for the provinces from within already meager state revenue uh, and as the decade progresses in a context of economic stagnation uh, this 18th amendment and its and its kind of fiscal federalism becomes a major bone of contention between the military and civilian governments however overall and despite this momentary step back for the military we see the army the pakistan military retaining its articulatory role in the polity and the social formation so you know it is the social force which basically mediates a kind of complex unity between different fractions of the ruling bloc through its central role in the polity in the economy and through its linkages to imperial and sub imperial powers such as the us and the gulf dictatorships when imran khan organized his movement and began launching a bid for power at the national level what was the basis of his political platform and what social groups went on to give their support to khan So uh, Imran Khan for those who don't know is Pakistan's most famous cricketer he is a world cup winning captain uh, he is arguably the third greatest cricketer of all time after Don Bradman and Gary Sobers uh, and he retires after winning the world cup uh, for Pakistan in 1992 he does his works in philanthropy uh, mainly on his cancer hospital in Lahore which is inspired by his late mother That's up in the air is getting under it this could be victory it is Pakistan win the world cup a magnificent performance in front of Imran Khan's world cup triumph came in his final match as captain at the age of 39 in 1992 Imran Khan his fifth world cup his fifth attempt to win the trophy and he's finally done it As he accepted the prize he talked about his plan to build a cancer hospital I would just like to say I want to give my commiserations to the English team but I want them to know that by winning this world cup personally it means that one of the my greatest obsessions in life which is to build a cancer hospital I'm sure that this world cup will go a long way towards completion of this obsession Later that year The Australian Current Affairs program 60 Minutes came to Pakistan to witness the welcome party for Khan. Back home with Imran Khan. It is clearly a case of hail the conquering cricket hero. 
Everywhere he goes, he's mobbed. Imran wants more for his country than simply cricket supremacy. He's capitalising on his popularity, trying to raise $22 million for his own hospital. A project already underway and a project with which he's obsessed. Well, Richard, this is my vision. It's, Some, not, it's not just a hole in the ground, is it? Something I have worked for now seven years and finally seeing this, I cannot even express the amount of fulfilment, sense of achievement I felt whenever I walk in through that door. Uh, you know, it means more to me than anything I've ever done or achieved in life. The presenter asked Khan whether he had any political ambitions. Well, you know, I really have thought about it, you know, because I was offered twice to come into politics. And really, it's something I know that, you know, one must know one's limitations. I know I'm not meant to be a politician. Do you care about the corruption that pervades the country here? Yes, uh, of course, one cares. You know, we try and everywhere you go, if you go to a dinner table, the main conversation, no matter where you go, is invariably comes on politics, the sort of uh, what's wrong with the society. Uh, and yet people seem incapacitated to do anything. That's why I say that I try and do what I can, and I realise my limitations. But do you need a revolution? Yeah, I think so. You know, I think maybe a revolution is the answer, provided it's the right one. You don't feel the situation here is hopeless? Hopelessness is a sin in Islam. You know, it's very specifically in Quran it states that for a Muslim to be to ever think of hopelessness as a sin, which I kept telling my team, by the way, during the World Cup and things were the worst, uh, lowest ebb. In 1997, amidst, you know, as I mentioned earlier, in the 90s, there was this period of musical chairs between the two mainstream parties and with the military in the background. So in 97, he forms a political party, the PTI, the Pakistan Movement for Justice in English, the PTI, which promises to, quote-unquote, cleanse Pakistan of corruption. Uh, now, even at the time, there are testimonies by very reliable people, including Pakistan's most respected philanthropist, Abdul Sattar Idi, that Imran had some kind of support from extremely reactionary segments of the Pakistani military and intelligence apparatus, such as the retired General Hamid Gul, who was one of the architects of the so-called Afghan Jihad in the 1980s. However, at the time, and despite his immense celebrity, uh, Imran Khan doesn't get, get much traction electorally. Uh, and for a time, he even supported General Musharraf's coup government in 1999 and beyond, but then turned against him when, you know, Imran, he and I mean, Imran couldn't uh, get kind of real political muster with the military. So Imran Khan's kind of fortunes really changed from 2011 onwards. Uh, and on the back of an emergent kind of professional and managerial middle class fraction, which is based mostly in urban and urbanizing areas of the core Punjab province, the KP province and the biggest city, Karachi. So this kind of professional middle class, managerial middle class kind of fraction is itself the product of the previous rounds of economic liberalization and kind of consumption-centered, service sector-based economic growth which Pakistan had seen over the last two decades. At that time, the estimates of this kind of middle class fraction come up to about 40 million out of a population of 200 million. Now, historically in Pakistan, the, such professional middle class fractions had found their political articulation and representation through the state bureaucratic apparatus, including the military itself. 
And so therefore, they were very close to the military, both sociologically in terms of the social groups they were emerging from and ideologically in terms of subscription to a very mainstream kind of Islam and military centered Pakistani nationalism. However, you know, the context of the late 2000s is this recurrent economic crisis, the narrowness of existing political formations, as I I discussed earlier, uh, there is an increasing incoherence of the existing complex of Islam and territorialism in under pressure from the war on terror. uh, And there is the crisis of the military centered order in late 2000s. So this new middle class kinds of finds finds articulation in, in, in Imran Khan's PTI via his celebrity, his uh, Khan's own kind of, you know, revanchist understanding of Islam, his kind of, you know, his rediscovery of Islam after a, after a playboy life through a cultural nationalism and very importantly, through a very technocratic discourse of corruption, which sees corruption, quote unquote, as a matter of morally compromised, uh, you know, kind of West Oxified elites. Of, as a matter of market distortion and as a matter of the violation of meritocracy. And of course, this, this discourse of corruption, this very technocratic understanding of corruption, not a structural one, but one based on personalities, was very much in line with the kind of good governance descriptions of the IMF and World Bank all through the 90s and 2000s. Uh, so there is this burgeoning middle class sentiment behind the PTI and Imran Khan as we move into the 2010s. However, of course, no middle class on its own is strong enough numerically or sociologically to take power without allied classes. And it's especially true in Pakistan's kind of first past the post parliamentary system. In these terms, there are really only two choices, right? So you can either have an alliance with those classes who are above or the classes who are below. And within this kind of fraying kind of unity of the Pakistani ruling bloc comes this middle class insurgency represented by the PTI, but ultimately fails to win the 2013 elections, except in one province, right? However, as the 2013 Sharif government progresses, there are antagonisms between the government and the military, recurrent antagonisms, and there is an opening for the PTI and it begins to receive active support from the military after the military has a falling out with the PMLN, PMLN government. And this falling out happens especially after 2016 over issues of foreign policy, internal security, and over the division of spoils of incoming Chinese investment to the tune of $50 billion. The Sharif government is ousted in 2017 through military judicial maneuvers on charges of corruption and political brokers, which consist of big and medium landlords, contractors and political entrepreneurs are increasingly cajoled by the military and its agencies to join the PTI. Uh, And the PTI then comes into power in the the 2018 elections based on these two important factors. One is the genuine popularity of Imran Khan and the PTI among middle classes and especially young people, right? So, for example, PTI increases its aggregate votes between 2013 and 18 by 9.2 million, which basically matches, which is almost exactly the same number of young people who were added to the electoral rolls in this interregnum. And the second factor which helps the PTI come into power, of course, as I mentioned, is the influx of political brokers with direct and indirect support of the Pakistani military apparatus. So in a sense, you know, the PTI and its allied class and its kind of core hegemonic kind of middle class had made its choice, right? So it's instead of allying with subordinate classes, this was kind of a populism with a middle class fraction at its core, but ultimately predicated on Pakistan's rapacious Praetorian Guard uh, and its usual networks of big business, landowners, 
petty contractors and brokers, right? So, for example, PTI's vice president, even today, is this person called Shah Mahmood Qureshi. He's one of the biggest landlords in Pakistan. And his family, of course, received huge land grants because of their obsequiousness and loyalty to the British Raj in colonial times. Now, all this, this kind of uneasy alliance, right, uh, between middle classes and upper classes and the military, all of this is centered around the personality of Khan, is mediated through the organizational muscle of Pakistan's military and intelligence apparatus. And it's basically based ideologically on this very right-wing ideological complex, you know, which centers a kind of very moralistic, market-centric understanding of corruption. And also there is this shifting linkage between militarism and Islam in the post-World War context. So in short, this was a very unstable alliance which came to power and it proved so in its time at the helm as well. Channel 4 News reported on Khan's election victory in 2018 and his alliance with the military. Poised to deliver his victory speech, Imran Khan appeared impatient. After all the big promises about a new Pakistan, the cricket star, with his almost mythical status, must now deliver. Accountability Accountability will start with me, then my ministers, and then we will work our way down. He promised economic transformation. My inspiration is that Pakistan should be a welfare state where we take responsibility for the poor people. While his supporters have been celebrating across the country, his victory has been overshadowed by accusations of voting irregularities. The results are being contested by opposition parties, including the Pakistan Muslim League of Nawaz Sharif, the ousted Prime Minister, jailed two weeks ago. With votes still being counted, his brother Shabazz appeared at a press conference, saying he rejected the results totally. Pakistan's military has come to Khan's defence, rejecting accusations of interference as malicious propaganda. Throwing their weight behind Mr Khan during the campaign, the military, accused of targeting his political rivals to ease his path to power, remained a key power broker. How did Khan ultimately become Prime Minister in 2018 and what was the track record of his government in office? I've already discussed PTI's path to power. Now, once in power, uh, as part of this precarious coalition, uh, and like all preced- like basically all preceding governments in Pakistan over the last two decades, the PTI inherits a very serious balance of payments and fiscal crisis. And one which is ultimately, as I've been mentioning, based on the structural factors and the specific mechanisms of Pakistan insertion into the imperial world system, as opposed to the highly moralistic and personality-centric understanding of corruption promoted by Imran Khan and the PTI. Now, in in its initial months, the Khan government dithers over going to the IMF or not. It eventually does go to the IMF. And there is a resulting program of structural adjustment and austerity, which causes huge inflation, huge unemployment. And economic growth basically contracts in Pakistan by 3% of the GDP. Again, this has been par for the course for almost all incoming governments in Pakistan. And so was the case with the PTI. In almost all spheres, the Khan government continues the same policies of liberalization, austerity, and stealth privatization mixed with limited forms of welfareism in forms of cash grant schemes. Those were also followed by previous governments, right? So, for example, the previous Sharif government, the PMLN government, was at the forefront of further privatizing the school system in in Punjab province, its main province, through public-private partnerships. On the other hand, when the Khan government came, the PTI government, or as I call the PTI-IMF army regime, 
they instituted a state-sponsored health insurance scheme, which basically incentivizes private for-profit health hospitals at the expense of universal public health care. And it's kind of an emulation of the American healthcare system. Relatedly, bureaucrats from the IMF were imported to serve in key ministries, including in, in finance and as the State Bank of Pakistan governor and deputy governor. The State Bank of Pakistan itself was quote-unquote autonomized under IMF dictates, ostensibly to free itself from again quote-unquote political interference and in accordance with neoclassical mantra to kind of make it an independent regulator of monetary supply. As opposed to even theoretically and under a different class coalition, the state bank serving public developmental needs. On top of this was the impact of the pandemic, COVID, which in its initial stages saw a drastic slowdown of economic activity and massive layoffs in Pakistan's already anemic industrial sector. However, in this case, actually, Pakistan and the PTI, uh, PTI Army government, if you, if you may call it that, was lucky because mainly due to its young population and some other unexplained reasons, some miracle really, Pakistan managed to avoid a disaster with COVID. And in fact, it ended up being a bit of a blessing for the PTI government as internationally debt and interest payments were deferred by the international financial institutions at this time. So what happened was that this opened up fiscal space for the, for the government to institute some limited forms of welfareism. But even here, the bulk of the so-called relief packages went into the pockets of real estate and construction cartels. And this was, of course, dressed as employment generation and relief. But, you know, this was the latest phase of so-called trickle down. Uh, and during this time, during this COVID time, you know, 10 million people in Pakistan are pushed below poverty line. The corporate sector, uh, you know, posts uh, uh, a 69% jump in profits year on year, which is happily proclaimed and boasted about by PTI ministers on Twitter. Uh, in addition to this kind of rampant rapaciousness, there was further encroachment by the military in the economy, with serving and retired officers now taking up all kinds of positions in ambassadorial roles, in state enterprises, for overseeing of Chinese investment in the country, and even down to being hired by factory owners as muscle men to keep labor quiescent. Uh, on top of this, the foreign exchange coming through the U.S. for anti-terror operations and through China for the Belt and Road Initiative were slowing down due to shifts in kind of imperial interests, like with regards to the U.S. or with regards to China because of blockages with regards to kind of investment utilization. Uh, so there, there is this narrowness of structural reforms or even lack of structural reforms and capacity at the economic level, which is linked integrally to the political maneuvers of you know what I call the hybrid PTI army IMF regime. Right. Uh, opposition politicians from the other parties were hounded and most often jailed. Uh, so were critical media personnel and even owner magnates linked to the opposition. The spate of quote unquote disappearances and abductions of activists by the military intelligence reached even the core province of Punjab. And there was a wanton use of colonial era treason and sedition laws, including on students demanding restoration of student unions on campus. This is almost, it was almost like a martial law government, but with a twist that there was a civilian, you know, popular prime minister in front of it. Uh, within government itself, as I've said before, the alliance was always going to be uneasy. The allies were always restless. And just in the main Punjab province, which is the kind of main base of military support and is centrally important to any stable rule in Pakistan, the PTI-led government was riven by at least four distinct factions. Alim, Tareen, 
Chaudhary server and then the PMLQ ally. And then there is, of course, the, 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 this, this quiescence of the opposition and line towing of allies were all basically guaranteed through the organizational muscle of the military intelligence services led by the ISI chief, Lieutenant General Faiz Hamid. At its peak, uh, this Khan military alliance was instrumental in ferreting General Musharraf, the previous military dictator, out of the country. And in alliance with the opposition, they also guaranteed another three-year extension for the reigning army chief, General Kamar Bajwa. And uh, indeed, the abiding quality of the Khan Bajwa IMF regime was its incoherence, right? One of an, it, this is what I would call an aborted populism. It was this paralysis, this almost grotesque dance, kind of almost this in appeasing first one faction, then another, while the usual coterie of elites made off with billions, right? So, for example, one expression of this incoherence and flailing about were from time to time, there were loud calls from governmental circles for the institution of a presidential system in Pakistan and the abolishment of fiscal federalism installed by the previously mentioned 18th Amendment. And of course, this was a demand, as I've indicated earlier, is emanating from the military's own aims for perpetuating its own political and economic stakes via this regime or government. PBS interviewed Khan last year, shortly before the US withdrawal from Afghanistan was complete. Prime Minister Khan, thank you very much for joining us. Let me start by asking you your assessment of the situation in Afghanistan right now with U.S. troops almost completely out after 20 years. Well, Judy, I think uh, the U.S. has really messed it up in Afghanistan. You see, first of all, they tried to look for a military solution in Afghanistan when there never was one. And people like me who kept saying that there's no military solution, who know the history of Afghanistan, we were called, people like me were called anti-American. I was called Taliban Khan. For anyone who objected to this way of, uh, I don't know what the objective was in Afghanistan, whether it was uh, nation building or democracy or liberate the women, whatever the cause was, the way they went about it, was never going to be the solution. So when they finally decided that there is no military solution, unfortunately, the bargaining power of the Americans or, or the NATO, NATO forces had gone. When there were 150,000 NATO troops in Afghanistan, that was the time to uh, go for a political solution. But once they had reduced the troops to barely 10,000, and then when they gave an exit date, the Taliban thought they had won. And so therefore, it was very difficult for now to get them uh, to compromise. It's very difficult to force them into a political solution. So because they think that, you know, they won. On the ideological front too, and I will finish here, at the ideological front too, Khan's loud kind of proclamations and international posturing over Islamophobia and over leadership of the so-called Muslim world was rooted in a turbocharged cultural nationalism with all its gendered oppressions, right? These were kind of more compensation, I think, for a shallow socio-political base and an incoherent economic project. So, for example, Imran Khan, during his rule, regularly held audiences with media personnel, social media influencers and the like, proclaiming Bollywood and, you know, this nebulous thing called 
Western values and culture as the root of Pakistan's various social ills, including highly publicized cases of rape and murder of women. So apart from the ramping up of direct coercion, uh, such ideological overdrive and narrow cultural nationalism kind of served as compensation for what I would call the lack of an integral hegemonic project. Uh, and this kind of ideological overdrive, Nehru cultural nationalism, basically was a means of dissimulation rather than organization and preparation of masses and people for a serious assault on the entrenched structure of power in Pakistan. And of course, as I've been implying, this assault, this serious assault on the structure of power and dependency in Pakistan would require a very different coalition of class forces, very different coordinates of hegemony than that represented by the PTI, IMF, Bajwari regime. Why was Imran Khan ousted as Prime Minister last year and how has he responded to that setback for his political project? Even with the kind of momentary hiatus and indirect relief of COVID almost, uh, things had really come to a head by the second half of 2021. There was restlessness among the opposition parties who were cornered and almost violently excluded from the corridors of power. There was brewing resentment at popular level due to, you know, this backbreaking austerity and inflation. There was the discontent and often open infighting among government factions in the key Punjab province. And all of this was kind of translating directly and indirectly into a rethinking going on in the army top brass itself over its active support to the PTI-led coalition. Things really came to a head in October 2021 when General Bajwa, the army chief, transferred General Faiz, who was the ISI chief, from his position as the intelligence chief. Now, it is the P is the prime minister who has to formally approve such postings. But the army, of course, expects to have its way in these things. But Imran Khan, uh, to the displeasure of General Bajwa, really dithered over the transfer. Because Hamid, this General Faiz Hamid, was basically effectively the PTI government's whip. Right, who kept both allies and opposition forces in order. Eventually, however, the army prevailed over this transfer. Uh, a new ISI chief came in and the Bajwa-Imran Khan alliance really soared. With Faiz Hamid, the chief whip gone, and the army PTI alliance unraveling, the opposition sense, sensed an opening and the so-called allies of the PTI uh, coalition government a jump ship in a vote of no confidence against Imran Khan. Here too, Imran Khan dithered and resisted, but was eventually forced out of office. But ultimately, you know, he fell on the altar of the same political brokers and the same military strongmen who had ensured his rise to power. Analysts say the new prime minister is almost certain to be the opposition leader, Shabazz Sharif. This BBC News bulletin captured the moment when Khan was removed from office. It was a night of intense political drama. This is the moment the Speaker of the House announced the result. 174 members have recorded their votes in favour of the resolution. Consequently, the resolution for vote of no confidence against Mr Imran Khan, the Prime Minister of Islamic Republic of Pakistan, has been passed by a majority of the total membership of the National Assembly. The opposition erupted. Frontrunner as next Prime Minister, Shabazz Sharif, is hailing the moment as a chance for a new beginning. A new dawn has started. A new day is coming. Allah has answered the prayers of millions. 
Tukhan and his core middle class base, however, uh, with their sociological and ideological affinity with the military bureaucratic apparatus, this ouster and withdrawal of support from the military came as a complete shock, right? So almost like jilted lovers, both on the streets and hyperactive internet forums, they went on the charge claiming first a US-sponsored conspiracy and then attacking General Bajwa directly for being a traitor to the country. The army, meanwhile, has responded with a measure, though although not the full measure, of the same repression on PTI notables and supporters as was meted out to their opponents during the height of the PTI IMF Bajwa regime. Khan himself first attempted to have a favored general, probably General Faiz, appointed as the next army chief after Bajwa's retirement. And when that did not happen, the PTI government has dissolved its own governments and the assemblies in the Punjab and Pakhtun, KP provinces in a bid to force early elections, which are scheduled to be held in late 2023. Now, this open dissension against the army in central core areas of Pakistan is unprecedented since at least the last round of anti-dictatorship struggle in 2007-2008. But I don't think that either Khan or his base have the will or most importantly, the structural capacity to carry out a sustained campaign against uh, the military and the Praetorian Guard. If he becomes too much of a nuisance to the military, the threat of elimination is always there. I think Khan received what I believe is a warning shot in early November and assassinations of political leaders in Pakistan not unheard of, as we have seen before with Benazir Bhutto. However, as I said, despite the high-sounding rhetoric of Khan and his allied social groups, the appetite and most importantly, the capacity for direct confrontation with the Praetorian order among Khan and his supporters is low. Uh, and this is basically due to their structural and social shortcomings and shallowness. However, what does increase his nuisance value is the wider crisis that Pakistan finds itself embroiled in. Uh, the new government formed by former opposition is the usual melange of has-beens, dynastic politicians, sons, nephews, and loyalists from assorted parties and regions. They too have been appeasing the military in various ways. So, for example, by not touching its budget and proposing laws, just as the PTI did, instituting very harsh punishment, punishments for any public criticism of state quote-unquote state institutions. And as in previous governments, they too have implemented austerity and are promising to do more to overcome a crippling kind of balance of payments crisis and restore a punishing IMF program, right? So basically the days of Pakistani ruling bloc's gendarmery role of, for imperialism are over. There is no American imperial patronage coming. The unconditional bailouts from Saudi Arabia, UAE, China are also not coming. And therefore, the IMF and international finance capital behind it is demanding its full pound of flesh, right? So just two days ago, there was a report from the IMF negotiations. The IMF team is in Pakistan right now. There was a report from the IMF negotiations that in addition to free currency flotation and tightening monetary policy, the IMF is demanding full cancellation of energy subsidies, even for the lowest, that is the poorest of unit consumers. Uh, so I think the, the issues and the questions are really much wider than Imran Khan itself. In a very concrete sense, populist upsurges in Pakistan, including that of Imran Khan, are really, you know, they're not the situation itself. They're merely a symptom of the situation. Indeed, they're a symptom of the long term or what, you know, Gramsci would call an organic crisis of the ruling bloc in Pakistan, which is rooted concretely in the lack of their in, an integral and expansive economic project 
uh, and most importantly with no prospect of forging such a project by the actors who are you know manning the coordinates of power currently Pakistan is currently facing a dire economic crisis DW News summed up the nature of the situation earlier this month Pakistan is facing its worst economic crisis in years runaway inflation and low foreign exchange reserves are contributing to the misery factors that led to Sri Lanka's meltdown last year though Pakistan's not there yet it's teetering on the edge queues like this one are becoming the norm people wait in line for hours to get subsidized flour a staple in Pakistan many simply can't afford the usual foodstuffs to feed their families which is why Pakistan is hoping to unlock more than a billion dollars in funding from the International Monetary Fund or the IMF but here's how Pakistan's economic crisis is directly affecting its people I have to queue up for 2 or 3 hours in line to purchase subsidized flour the regular prices are unaffordable inflation has gone crazy prices are increasing and the situation in the country is getting worse There is no electricity but we get bills there is not gas but we get large bills We were able to buy groceries for 1000 rupees but now we can only buy a few things with that same amount To drive home just how much of a sticker shock people are experiencing let's take a look at just onions Now it's a staple of the South Asian diet cheap and tasty and a core ingredient for most dishes Over the past year in Pakistan the price of onions has increased over 500%. As a final question in the light of all the factors that you've discussed so far how do you think the political crisis in Pakistan is likely to develop over the coming months and indeed over the coming years? Well in the short term the situation is really bad right so it's since 2019 when Khan was in power the inflation is 70% the rate of inflation is 35% just over the last year when khan has been out of power and this rate of inflation is the highest in pakistan's history in pakistan since 1975 right 60% of the population is young is under 30 the pakistani economy needs to grow even in mainstream terms it needs to create about 1.5 million jobs each year to absorb this growing kind of youth bulge there is huge youth unrest and unemployment uh you know even among degree holding young people 33% are unemployed these are the latest figures by pakistan institute of development economics 33% of degree holder youth let alone so called illiterate or uneducated degree holder youth are unemployed and among those who are employed 23% are on unpaid jobs right so like unpaid internships super exploitation basically pakistani ruling classes basically have reached this economic dead end this structural crisis of long duration Uh, and because there are no kind of fortuitous geopolitical interventions coming which have saved them in the past it seems uh, you know that this structural crisis has really reached the end of of its tether and this in turn as i've been as i've been implying throughout is conditioning the seemingly interminable political crisis and deadlock in very uncertain ways uh now i'm not in the business of making predictions as the direction of events kind of really depends ultimately on the balance of forces and strategies which come to prevail at any moment but there is a certain structuring of the terrain uh, as uh, of the terrain as it is that i have pointed to above which points towards certain possible scenarios which i can lay out for you right the first scenario is the pakistani ruling class's favored course which is that of muddling through right so basically get the imf 
get loans from so-called friendly countries, survive this latest round of adjustment, hold elections, but ultimately they will arrive at the same crisis of balance of payments, fiscal shortfall, debt payments, and will repeat at the, repeat the same cycle again. So this is Pakistani ruling class's most favored course and always has been to survive to see another day. However, in light of the structural economic dead end, as we've discussed above, in the medium to long term, I think there are really only two ways out of this, right? Uh, the first is an expensive and deep-rooted program of structural change, uh, not of the IMF sort, with the same mantra of kind of export-oriented growth and integration into global markets. Uh, indeed, it is this specific insertion of Pakistan into the world system, which has led to the present crisis, as I've been discussing. In contrast, this alternative scenario would entail a genuinely different program of what you know, Samir Amin would call delinking, uh, which would be a program of internally focused development based on increasing productive investment through state intervention or nationalization of key sectors, uh, building linkages between industry and agriculture, broad-based and labor-absorbing forms of industrialization and agricultural productivity increased as opposed to enclave forms of capitalist globalization. Now, all of these steps themselves are predicated on raising effective demand at home, which would entail at the minimum thoroughgoing land reforms in both urban and rural areas. Now, as is obvious, such a minimum program of internally focused development and getting out of the grips of imperialist dependency uh, requires a very different coalition of class forces and power. The other scenario which, which can happen is that of the Pakistani ruling bloc deciding to go full tilt on IMF-style structural adjustment, liberalization, privatization, austerity, and full-on attacks on whatever, whatever dregs of welfareism and protections are left for the poor, while also wrenching, you know, in, in accordance with IMF dictates, while also wrenching sections of the elite, sections of the elite towards a different kind of marketized program. Now, this would then entail a further kind of round of turbocharged program of dispossession and extraction from the subordinate classes and from Pakistan's many peripheries. The social and political unrest that this is bound to generate both among popular classes and sections of the elite who stand to lose out from such a whole scale restructuring, such widespread unrest can only be quelled through a deep rooted and extremely ferocious program of repression. Uh, something akin to a Pinochet or Zia-type dictatorship, which disciplines the popular classes, of course, but also parts of the dominant bloc to ensure integration into the imperial world system on still unequal but different terms. And really, there is really only one actor in the Pakistani polity which can carry out such a program, and even if that. This is a scenario which is to be feared but one which the structural and kind of historical incapacity of the Pakistani ruling classes is bringing more and more into the realm of possibility every day. Many thanks to Ayaz Malik for that introduction to Pakistan's political crisis. You can also read his article on Pakistani politics on the Jacobin website. This Jacobin podcast is supported by the Left Book Club. It's a non-profit club with reading groups and events for a list of books that explore radical alternatives to capitalism. You can join the Left Book Club for just £6 a month. That's less than $8. You can also buy someone a gift membership. Listeners to this podcast can get their first month free by going to leftbookclub.com and using the code WINFREE 
with all letters capitalized.